If you have your Bibles or your devices or whatever, open them up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17 on adoption as the heart of the gospel. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. For those of you that may not know, November is adoption month, and so this is a month that we typically take to focus uh, on adoption uh, in various ways, and so here this text focuses in on that as well. It was January of 2005. I was walking down the steps at the place where I was working at the time, and my phone inside my coat pocket began to vibrate. I pulled out the phone, as I typically do, to see who it was, as, as we all do, to see if we really want to answer it at that moment in time or not. And, and I looked and saw that it was my wife's aunt who was calling. Now, I don't know how close you are with your in-laws, but my wife's aunt didn't typically call me. In fact, I think this was probably the first time she'd ever called. So immediately in my mind, I thought this is something that's important. I thought probably bad news, and so I needed to answer the phone. So I swiped across. I answered the phone. I said, hello, how are you? And she said the first words out of her mouth were, do you want to adopt a little girl? Now, in my heart, I wanted to say yes to that question, but I think it was actually the Holy Spirit that put a check there because I, I told her, I said, I think I need to call Joy and talk to her before I answer this question. So just some free marital advice. Don't adopt a kid and bring one home without talking to your wife first. That's, that would not have been a good idea if I had answered the question first. And so the Spirit was kind that day. I called Joy. I talked to her about it. And, and my wife's name's Joy, which is great because that means I always have joy in my heart. And so that's really cool too. And so I'm talking to her and she says, yeah, let's do this. And so I call Aunt Deb back and I said, we're game. Let's do this. And so I went to chapel then. We had chapel every day there. After, after I finished it, I went and the person presiding said, if you have something on your heart, come down front. I said, all right, God, I've got something on my heart. I'll come down front. I remember praying at the altar. I remember the prayer specifically. I said, God, you know, as much as I might like it, I know you don't write things in the clouds and you don't send text messages with your will. So I'm not asking for a sign. I think this is a good thing. I think this is a godly thing. I think this is a, a theological thing, adoption. And so I'm moving forward. If you don't want us to do this, slam the door in our face. I got up from being there at the altar, went back to the seat. And while I was uh, praying down front, the only person I knew in Fort Worth that had adopted had sat in my seat during that time. Now, I've got to explain that because to sit in my seat, I, I carried my backpack. Like I, I like to carry a big backpack with a bunch of books. And so I had a big backpack with a bunch of books that he kind of had to climb over to sit in my seat. It wasn't an easy thing for him to do. So he probably did it during the prayer time. He did that thing we all do when we want to move during prayer. We kind of squint our eyes and pretend we're praying so he didn't see well, but he sat there. So I'm like, dude, can I get my stuff out from under the seat here? And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I sat in your seat. I'm like, it's okay. It's a God thing. And so I told him, I said, we need to go out to eat tonight. So my wife and his wife and the two of us went out to eat that night and began to talk about all the things you have to do in order to adopt a child. And so we lived in Texas at the time. The child was in Florida at the time. We had this list of things that we had to do. And so we called to get a home study. And when we called the people at the home study place, they said, yeah, we don't have any openings right now. It takes time. You have to be on a list and you have to wait. And, and we said, look, we don't, we don't know what we're doing. We got a phone call. We're going to adopt a little girl. She needs a mom and dad. We like, we, we want a child and so we're just this we have no clue can we get on a waiting list or something and they said yeah sure we'll put you on a waiting list but don't expect anything well then that Sunday they call back and they said we've had two cancellations for Monday morning we can be at your house at eight o'clock a.m. Monday morning so we did what some of you probably are familiar with we call it at my house the stash and dash have you ever heard of it 
And so we started stashing. Some of you teenagers have heard of it. You just do it in drawers and rather the whole house. And you put it into a closet and then you shove that closet door until it latches and then you pray they don't open that door because if they do, they might not survive. When that door flies open and all the stuff whacks them right in the face. And so we got the house ready. They came. They did the home study. We had to get a doctor of record. And so we called and, and asked around to our friends who's the best pediatrician in the Fort Worth area. And Dr. Worsley was the guy's name. And so we picked up the phone and called and said, hey, we need a doctor of record. And the receptionist kind of laughed. She's like, you know, people usually get on his waiting list nine months in advance in hopes that there's an opening by the time the baby's born. And we said, look, we don't have a clue what we're doing. We got a phone call. We're trying to adopt a little girl. Can you help us out? And she said, hold on a second. She went back. She came back to the phone and she said to us, you got your doctor of record. How did you know Dr. Worsley was adopted? We didn't have a clue that Dr. Worsley was adopted. We didn't know anything about that. And so all of these things just continue to fall into place. And from that initial phone call, walking down the steps at the office, nine days later, we were in a lawyer's office in Florida. Now, getting lawyers in two different states to talk to each other in nine days is a small miracle by itself, right? And so we're in the lawyer's office. Sorry if you're a lawyer. I didn't mean to offend you. But we walk into that lawyer's office, and they take the little girl, and they put her in one room. They take the birth parents, put them in a different room. They take us and they put us in a different room. And we walked in that day with no relationship, uh, with, with her having a different name, a different last name, and, and, and nothing uh, connecting the two of us. As we're sitting in that room, they're talking to the birth parents about, uh, are you doing this of your own free will? They're not coercing you. They're not doing any of those type things. They take care of all that. And we're, we're in the room waiting for what seemed like forever, but probably only about 30 minutes to an hour or something of that nature. As we're sitting there waiting, all of a sudden they open the door and they bring in this little girl. And when they bring in this little girl, I don't know what they were thinking because they handed the little girl to me. Now, now my wife's in there, my mom's in there, my dad's in there. They came down because it's the first grandchild, but also in case things fell through to be there for us. And, and they handed the little girl to me. Now, I know nothing about babies at this point, right? Because we didn't have a child. And so all I know is that she's about the size of a football, and I played football, and the coach said, cover the tip of the ball, tuck it in tight, and don't fumble. And so they hand me the little girl, and I put the head in the palm of my hand because she was a month old. She was born at like five pounds, so she's still only like six pounds. Back of her head, I'm kind of palming the back of her head with my hand, and, and I've got her laying right here, tucked in tight, covering the tip of the ball, and I'm not about to fumble, all right? I mean, this is... And I remember looking into the eyes of this little girl that just a few hours ago I had no relationship with, and looking into the eyes, knowing that at that moment I would die for that little girl. Now, if you've had kids, you get it. You absolutely understand it 100%. But, but you got to know a little bit about me. So I, I'm a fourth-degree black belt in karate. If you mess with me, there are easier targets out there, all right? But I, I used to live in Texas. I've got a really big gun safe. If you mess with my wife, we're going to do some hostile evangelism. We're going to introduce you to Jesus. You're going to meet him, right? I mean, it's, it's it for you. You're done, all right? But you mess with that little girl. That's God calling me to prison ministry. From the inside. Yeah, I mean, we're going to start some cell groups in a gated community, and that's it, right? It's, and if, if you're a father and you have a little girl, you testify this morning, right? That is, you know, when you look into that little girl, there's, she's 12 now. There's some days I wish she could still fit in my arms, right? And I could, but that love that you have based off of a legal transaction that took place in the lawyer's office, she walked in with a different last name. That day she walked out with the last name White, which is pretty cool, because that means you live at the White House everywhere you go. I mean, it's, and, and she walked out with a dad who would die for her at sunup. 
any given day. I wouldn't think twice about it. And that theological concept of adoption is what we see in this passage of Romans chapter 8. Now, I'm an earthly, flawed father. I'm sinful just like all of you. My love is not perfect. I'm selfish. But when I look and think about my daughter and the love that I have for her, and that whatever she does, I'm going to be there. I'm always going to be on her team. I'm always going to be in her corner. I'm always going to be pulling and rooting for her. And when I think about the fact that this passage gives us a glimpse into the theology of adoption of a heavenly father that has a perfect love, of a heavenly father that understands all, of a heavenly father that is not flawed like I am, but has that perfect, pure love, how much should we be thankful this morning for God who loved us? Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Let me set your context. Romans chapter 7, often referred to as the I, the me, the my, the workspace chapter. You see the words I, me, and my over 40 times in Romans chapter 7. That Romans chapter 7 effort of I, me, and my ends in verse 24 with wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Romans chapter 8, you see a contrast starting. Romans chapter 8, we get that great verse There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in Romans chapter 8, you see in the Spirit. You see the Spirit mentioned 22 times. So there's a stark contrast between life and the I, the me, and the my that results in who will rescue me from this body of death to life and the power of the Spirit, which results in no condemnation now for those who are in Christ. And that leads us to Romans 8 verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father." The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. This text this morning in these five verses gives us two points that it teaches us about life and the power of the Spirit. And first is that the Spirit leads us to life, and the second second is that the Spirit affirms our sonship. First, the Spirit leads to life in verses 12 and 13. He starts off with, so then. The so then indicates to us that everything that has come previously is leading up to the point that he's going to make now. It's kind of the, the what's your point, Paul? Well, so that, so then. It, it's the Hena clause, if you're thinking about it in the Greek. It's the application of what's coming. There's all of these things. It's building up to this, and then here's the climax. He says, so then, brothers. And when he includes brothers here, he's not including it in a way of saying that I don't remember your name, so I walk up to you and say, hey, brother, how you doing? He's not including it in some other context here. He's saying here that these are the brothers and the sisters in Christ. This is for believers. So here, so then, brothers and sisters in Christ, because once we are adopted into the family of God, we are all brothers and sisters, and he uses the term brothers here generically, and he says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. Now, what does that mean? For those who have been saved, you are a debtor not to the flesh. Does he mean the skin that covers the bones and the sinew and the muscles? That's not what he's talking about. 
We understand that when we are born, because of Adam and Eve's sin and their sin nature of eating of the apple or of the forbidden fruit, that they have a sin nature that's passed to us, and so we all have a sin nature that causes us to flee away from a holy God who loves us. And then when we repent of our sins and place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, at that moment, the Holy Spirit who has drawn us regenerates us. We, we have a new nature, but that new nature doesn't mean we don't deal with those old issues. And so the New Testament often talks about the flesh, the flesh that pulls us to do things that are sinful, things that are not good, that are not right. Just because you get saved doesn't mean you don't deal with struggling with old sin issues. Doesn't mean you don't still struggle with pride. You're never going to reach a Christian perfectionism in this life. You're going to struggle. But what Paul's saying here to us is he's saying, So then, after the I, the me, and the my, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? You move to the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's the who. It's Jesus Christ on the cross by the power of the Spirit will rescue us so that we are no longer debtors to our sinful nature, to our flesh. You can be free in Christ Jesus. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. We talk about this casually sometimes. We'll say things like, he got in the flesh. What we mean by that is he started acting sinful. You you see those things often when you go into competition and things happen and, and competitive spirits raise up too high and people say things or do things they wouldn't normally do. And so here it says we're not to be debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if you live by the power of the Spirit, then there will be life. That so then pulls in chapter 8, verse 5, where it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. To set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So think about what he's saying here. If you have your mind set on the flesh... What is the flesh in our life? What is that, that word? Make it real. What does the flesh mean? The flesh means those sinful things that we like to do. The pride, the arrogance, the consumer mentality that maybe we like, the material possessions, the hedonism, those things that bring us pleasure that may not give God glory that we're not supposed to participate in, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, all these things. If that's where your mind is set, if your mind, your energy, your efforts is set on pursuing those things of the flesh, then at that that point, it brings death. In fact, it brings slavery. You're really enslaved to your own sin, and it's by repenting and coming to the cross that you are set free to do the things that you need to do. If you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, that brings life. Well, what are the things of the Spirit? What does that look like? You're setting your mind on loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving others as yourself. You've got the fruit of the Spirit living in your life, peace, patience, joy, happiness. You have contentment that's taking place. Your circumstances don't control how you feel. You know how to be content whether you have a lot or whether you have a little. You're demonstrating these things. You have these these, uh, spiritual characteristics. If you want to read your Bible to learn more about God, you're active in a local church. You're participating with others. You're, You're trying to lead others to Christ. You're trying to grow in Christ. You're mind is set on the things of the Spirit. So there's a good question for you this morning as application. Where's your mindset? You evaluate, how am I living my life? Am I living my life with all of my focus on the things of the world and then wondering why are things not going well? Or do I have my mindset on the things of the Spirit? Here, Paul says to us, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now notice the combination that he puts together there. 
by the power of the Spirit, you. There's a cooperative effort taking place here, so let me be clear. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We add nothing to it. We bring nothing of worth or value to what Jesus has already accomplished on the cross. It's all Him. So we don't, we don't get to pat ourselves on the back for receiving salvation. He's already done it. He went to the cross. He paid the penalty. He went to the grave. He got up three days later. He conquered death. He ascended to the Father. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, and He sat down because the job was finished. And even on the cross, when He's there, He cries out to telestai, meaning it is finished. It's done. There's nothing we bring to that. Salvation is purely God saving us by His grace and His mercy. Living the Christian life, here is what Paul is talking about, and he says, by the power of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, there's errors that we can make here. We can sit back and say, I don't have to do anything. God's going to take care of it all, and I just do nothing. Well, that, that's just pure spiritual laziness. That's not what Paul's talking about. But we can also think that we're going to do it all by ourselves. I'm going to pull up my bootstraps. I'm going to walk into that spiritual octagon, and I'm going to use my muscles and my brawn, and I'm going to overcome all of these temptations. But what that doesn't recognize is that my biggest problem is me. My biggest problem is my sinful tendencies and my flesh, and I can't overcome me without the power of the Holy Spirit living within me. That's why I have to read the Word. That's why I have to be saturated with the Word of God. That's why my mind needs to be transformed to His image, not conformed to this world. And so I need to be renewed daily. I need to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit in my life so that when I stumble and I fall, I repent and I get back up. And through the power of the Spirit, we put to death those deeds of the flesh. Now, this is a struggle because in my life, I want to be the guy that could conquer it all by myself. Anybody identify out there with that? Now, let me, let me prove it to you. We, we identify with this as a culture. Historians talk about it as American rugged individualism. But even our culture depicts this and appeals to this. How many of you have ever seen a Rocky movie? Yeah, Rocky takes on the world, right? The, my favorite one's Rocky IV. He goes over there and he beats up the Russian that's like two feet taller than him and can bench press a thousand pounds more than he can. And he's in the ring and he says, if eyes can change and yous can change, we's all can change, right? Horrible grammar, but we love the movie anyway. And he's walking out. I see that movie and I start walking out of the theater. And I even walk a little differently after I see a Rocky movie. If you, I mean, there's like a, there's like shoulders go back. Chest comes out a little bit. You got a little spring in your step. You throw away your popcorn a little different. You're like chunking that popcorn into the trash can. Somebody gets in your way, you're looking at them like, hey man, didn't you see me up there on that screen? I'll take you out. You better watch it. Now, I mean, there's, it, it affects us. There, we identify with the hero. Uh, otherwise, there would be no Chuck Norris movies. But, you, I mean, Chuck Norris goes out with a spoon and takes out three countries before breakfast that morning, and we all watch it and think, yeah, that's me. I'm up there, yeah. I, I could do that, yeah. And we watch the Avengers, and when we watch the Avengers, whenever the people get beat up, right, we're always the Hulk, puny God, slapping people around and then thumping them and knocking them thousands of miles. That's us. We like to read the stories of the Bible even and think we're the hero. We like to think we're the David in the David and Goliath story rather than the people scared on the hill crying out and that Jesus is our David conquering the Goliaths. We like to think we can do this all by ourselves, and that's where I find myself far too often. And this text reminds us, I can't defeat me by myself. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit living within me, saturated with the Word of God, that I overcome those deeds of the flesh. And so here, it's by the power of the Spirit, you, and what does he say? Put to death the deeds of the body. 
Now, there's, there's a caution for us here, too. Sometimes we like to make peace with our sin like a security blanket. It's been with us so long, we like it, and we want to keep it around, and so it is our comfort device. And this text tells us that you put to death those deeds. That word death is a strong word. It doesn't mean you put it on life support. It means you kill it. It doesn't mean that you make peace with it and carry it around as an appendage. You kill it. You take care of it. You get rid of it. You put it away. So don't make peace with your sin. If you live for the flesh, you will die. If you live for the power of the Spirit in your life, you will live. The Spirit leads to life. Verse 14 also shows us that the Spirit affirms our sonship. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, I can't help but think about times in my life that I've been led by others to go in various places. So I love my dad. My dad's a great dad, awesome dad, godly dad. But I remember following him in a car, and that's never a good idea when you're following dad in a car. And, and, and it, we're in the left-hand lane of a three-lane interstate, and all of a sudden he's driving across three lanes to get off on an exit. And I'm sitting here thinking, that's... That's just crazy. I'm in a Camaro, so I don't mind. I get over three lanes and we get off too. But, but it's who you're following, right? And this says we're supposed to follow the Spirit. We're supposed to follow and be led by the Spirit of God so that we will be sons of God because God knows all things. God wants what's best for us. So unlike us that we only know this little amount of all infinite knowledge and we don't know the future and we have selfish tendencies and we have a fallen nature. We trust God who is pure and holy and is the giver of good gifts. We follow him. And so it's kind of like, it's kind of like me and my dog. Now, I love big dogs. Anybody in the room like big dogs? We had German Shepherds and Black Labs, and, and our German Shepherd just passed, but I bought my wife this German Shepherd when we were earlier on in our marriage, and at German Shepherd, just a manly dog, right? I mean, they, they, they use those dogs to do just cool stuff, and so I thought this big German Shepherd's going to be our big masculine dog. I bought it for my wife for her birthday, so she got to name it, so she named my big masculine German Shepherd Princess. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still getting over that, and... Um, but she was. She was a princess. And so in her later years of life, her hips started going out on her. I would carry her up the steps at night, and I would put her on her princess bed in the bedroom so she could sleep there with us. And I'd get up in the morning, and I would pick her up and carry her back down the steps and put her down and lead her outside. And I mean, this dog was spoiled. We would cook like steak and chicken for this dog to eat just because she, wasn't gonna, she didn't want to eat regular dog food and stuff like that. She was completely spoiled. But at one morning, I was bringing the dog down. I put the dog down at the bottom of the steps, and I said, okay, princess, come on. Let's go outside. I need to get to work. And, and the dog, instead of following me, turned to the left and went into the study. I remember just being ticked off. I carry you up the steps. I carry you down the steps. We cook steak and chicken for you. I want to take you outside. I need to get to the office. I want what's best for you, and you won't follow me. Follow me. Come follow me. We need to do these things. And I remember getting frustrated, and I get to the office, and I'm reading my quiet time and looking in the Bible, reading Scripture, and, and praying and thinking to God, and, and it hit me how many times am I like that dog where all of a sudden I think I know best, I think I'm in charge, I think I'm the one that's got it all covered in my infinite knowledge, and I take off and go on this side route because that's where I think I need to be instead of being led by the Holy Spirit, following the God who loves me and who knows all things. And perhaps you're here this morning, and that's you. And you're off on your own trail, and you're off doing your own thing, and you know it's not where God wants you, and you know it's not what He wants you doing, but you think you know best. And here our text is telling us this morning that it's those who are led by the Spirit of God that are sons of God. 
For we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And I can't read this text without thinking about the children of Israel. You think about the children of Israel, Moses, who was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. You think about the Israelites who in Exodus 4.22, God says that they are his firstborn sons, the people that God adopted, the plagues that he used so that they could come out of slavery and be his adopted sons. They go to the Red Sea and what do they do? They see the Red Sea on one side. They see the army on the other side. They say, Moses, why did you bring us out here? Because there's not enough graves in Egypt and they already doubt. And Moses raises his staff and there's dry ground and they walk across on dry ground. They get to the other side. The water closes in and kills all of those chariots all of their persecutors. And then after they have all of these great miracles happen, Exodus 16, 2, they say, Moses, did you bring us out here so that we would starve? And God provides manna for them. And then they say in Exodus 17, 2, Moses, we have no water. We're going to thirst to death. And God provides water for them out of the rocks of the ground. Exodus 32, 1, Moses goes up and they say, where is this Moses that brought us out here to die? Numbers 11, 1, it says, everyone complained. Numbers 11.5, they say, we're sick of manna. We have the same thing to eat every day. We want something different than McDonald's. I mean, this is, we're tired of the same old stuff, right? And then in Numbers 14.2, they said, we would have been better off to have died in Egypt. I read those texts, and honestly, in my mind, I think, what idiots. All of these things happen. All these miraculous things you saw. And here you say, I'd be better off to have died in Egypt. But then I also examine my own life. And I think I have a God who redeemed me out of my sin by His grace and by His mercy, by His Son dying on a cross and going to a grave and conquering death and conquering sin. And there are days in my life I do my own thing. I do what I want to do. I give in to the power of the flesh and to the sinful nature that I have instead of following the God who loves me. And this text tells us we were not given a spirit of fear to fall back into slavery. I love coming home come home after a day of work and your kids are there and they grab you and they hug you and your dogs are there and they're wagging their tails so much that the whole back half of their body's wagging. And I'll never forget there was one day when my daughter was a little younger. I came home from preaching and the dogs were there, but the daughter wasn't. I walked in and in that particular house, we had a couch that sat right in front of the TV, that perfect viewing spot, right, that everybody wants. And my wife had a recliner over here and there was an entryway and the stairway that went up and it turned. And, and I noticed my daughter wasn't around, didn't know what was going on. I was talking to my wife and I saw her hair on the landing going up the stairs. And this was, she was at that age where she thought, if I can't see you, you can't see me. She didn't realize that if something's out here, I could still see that it was out there. And so I knew she was up there and I thought maybe we're playing hide and seek. And so I'd, I'd catch her eye and she'd pull back. And, and we played that game for a little bit, but she didn't laugh. She usually laughed when we played that game. So I knew something was up. And so I said to her, I said, Rachel, come on down the steps. Rachel comes down the steps. She comes down like this. Now, some of you parents in the room know what that means, right? So she gets to the bottom of the steps, and I said, Rachel, what's wrong? And she says, I'm in trouble. And being that wise father, I said, um, yeah, I know that already, but what did you do? And she says, I his I looked at my wife because we don't speak in tongues at my house. And I had no clue what she was talking about. And I said, what was this? And, 
And um, she explained to me that my daughter had been getting the candy out of the cabinet and then hiding the wrappers in the decorative bowls on top of the cabinets. And that particular Sunday, she needed the decorative bowl to serve some guests. And so she grabs this big white decorative bowl and moves it down. And when she looks at it, it is covered in wrappers of chocolate candy that my daughter has been eating throughout who knows how long. Now, my wife's telling me this. My daughter's over here, pinky in mouth, and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, my first thought, right? Godly thoughts, good thoughts. I'm thinking, that's funny. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just wanting to laugh out loud. And, and my second thought is, I can't laugh. This is not fair. I, I can't affirm the deceptiveness in my daughter's heart. I've got to shepherd her towards God, so I've got to be the good dead. So my second thought was, why didn't you just tell me you wanted to eat chocolate and watch TV? I'm always up for an excuse to eat chocolate, right? My third thought was, there's a trash compactor two feet away. Just go to the trash compactor, lift up the stuff, stick it underneath, slam it back down, push it in, hit the trash compactor. Nobody ever knows. Come on, be smart. And I thought, I can't say that because that's like worst dad of the year award, right? You can't teach them how to be good at evil and deceptiveness. And so I have to look at my daughter and say, Rachel, sit down. So we're on this couch, three-person couch. I'm on the far side over there. Here's the arm of the couch. She squeezes into the arm of the couch and sits down, pinky still in the mouth. Now this girl that I have already told you I would die for sunup for is sitting as far away from me as she possibly can on the couch because sin has created a spirit of fear and a spirit of separation. And all I really wanted was my welcome home hug. I would have gladly sat on the couch and ate candy and watched TV, cuddled up with my little girl. And there's some of you this morning that may be in the room. You're on the couch, you're here. But you know in your mind, you are at that far edge of the couch because the sin that is happening in your life has separated you from experiencing the joy and the power of a victorious Christian life because you are caught in slavery to your own sin and it creates this spirit of fear to a heavenly father, not a heavenly father that would die for you, but a heavenly father that sent his son who did die for you at sundown and got up out of the grave three days later. And I just want to challenge you, if you're here today and you're on the edge of that couch, come home. Come home with a spiritual hug to your heavenly father, asking forgiveness, living in the power of the spirit to the life that he wants for you. It says we're not to have that spirit of fear to fall back into slavery, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And that spirit of adoption as sons, you say, well, why not sons and daughters? Well, daughters had a relationship. Sons had a relationship and an inheritance. All of us, male and female, we have a relationship with God the Father that we have an inheritance and a relationship. We are all equal before Christ by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And that Abba, Father should bring to mind Mark 14, 36, where Jesus is in the garden. He's crying out, Abba, Father, if this cup could pass by me, please let it be so, but not my will, but your will be done. This the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Contrast that image on the couch to going to the zoo with Rachel. And, and when we go to the zoo, I've got this devilish thing inside of me that I like to aggravate the animals and tap on the glass when you're not supposed to. And You know, if it's a sign that says don't do it, I want to do it just because it said don't do it. I mean, that's just kind of, that's kind of my own issue I have to deal with. But the lions are there, and I want the lions to roar. So I'm aggravating the lions, trying to get the lions to roar. And all of a sudden, this lion roars. Now, have you 
ever heard a lion roar? It reverberates through every bone in your body. It is a powerful thing that lets you know how small you are and how great he is. And that lion roared, and all of a sudden, there's this little girl that had jumped up and put a bear hug on my neck and tucked her head into my neck. And I had grabbed a hold of her, and I was holding on to her tight, and she was squeezing in tight because she was scared of that lion that had just roared. And I did what every good dad does at a moment like that. I lied. Because I told her, I said, I'll protect you, don't worry. And what am I going to do? If that lion comes out of that cage, I mean, the best I've got is run, Rachel, eat me. Here I am. I mean, that's it, right? Hopefully it's a big enough meal to take care of it. And so Rachel at that moment didn't look at me and say, Dad, I want to see the papers that say that you're my dad. She knew because there's a spirit within her that I'm the guy that sits in the recliner and eats candy with her. I'm the guy that watches TV. I'm the guy that's there when she's scared. I'm the guy that's there when she has boo-boos. And there's a spirit that says, this is dead. And this morning, there should be a spirit testifying within you that says to you, you are adopted as a son of the king. We have a spirit that bears witness with us that we are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ Provided we suffer with him. This life may not be easy. This life may not be all frills. But provided that we suffer with him, we may be glorified with him. And to be glorified with him, an heir, a joint heir with Christ, we are heirs of the God who created it all. We are heirs of the God that does not change. We are heirs of the God that loves with an infinite love and cannot tell a lie. He defines love. Love doesn't define him. This is the God that we are here today to worship and to serve. And this is the God that we will live forever with in all eternity. The God who wants what's best for you. The God who wants to free you. The God who wants to give you peace and satisfaction and joy like you can't imagine. That's the God that we're here to worship. And the theological concept of adoption means that once you are saved, you are part of his family and you are part of his family forever. There is no giving you back. There is no changing. That legal declaration of justification is done and you are part of the family of God. So this morning... If you're here and you've never repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ, there's a good, good father who loves you and wants to adopt you into his family, wants to redeem you by the power of Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you have strayed off to a trail and you need to come back. Maybe you're here this morning and you're sitting on the edge of the couch because you have sin in your life and you need to just come back and have a spiritual hug and be reconciled to your father. Dear Lord, whatever it is in our lives, I pray that you would give us the faith to respond. That, Lord, you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us. Lord, you would help us to live a life in the power of the Spirit and not to live a life by our own flesh. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.